beginning uh, this evening's talk <clears throat> with a question. The question that I asked towards the end of my last, uh, last week's talk regarding the first establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body in the body. Am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? This evening's talk is part two of mindfulness, and it's the second, third, and fourth foundations exploring these this evening. The second establishment or domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of feelings. This foundation of mindfulness is potentially a particularly illuminating aspect of our practice towards directing our very natural inclination for happiness to the right place and in the right way. Every experience that comes in through the sense doors, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thought, provides some kind of specific information for the mind. And there are particular feelings that occur through the contact of the sense doors with all of the various phenomena that we experience. From the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, these feelings are very simply and clearly classified into three groups. Pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling. Neutral feeling. These feelings or feeling tones arise in response to either physical or mental stimuli. Attachment, emotional attachment, or aversion to sense door experience is a result that often follows, very follows along very directly from these feelings. So, for instance, when we experience a pleasant feeling in relation to physical or mental contact with some object, for most people, there's an almost immediate emotional attachment, an immediate emotional attachment to the feeling or to the object or to both. And when the pleasant feeling subsides, which, of course, it always does, the desire to get it back or get another one very quickly often comes up, either quite overtly or subtly. A craving for arises, with craving immediately preceded by dissatisfaction and sometimes also quickly, very, very quickly followed by a state of dissatisfaction. And so our peace, 
our pleasant abiding, our sense of well-being is disturbed. The nature of dissatisfaction is agitation, an inner restlessness, which translates as stress, mental and physical stress. The experience of craving itself is to some degree a burning contraction, also stress. When we experience unpleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object, most people almost immediately experience emotional dislike to some degree or some other form of aversion, maybe fear or boredom, hatred or anger or disappointment. We want to get rid of or we want to get away, get away from the object or get away from the feeling or get away from both. And so again, our mental peace is disturbed. And again, we're experiencing stress. So much stress in this life coming directly from one's relationship to pleasant and unpleasant feeling. When the feeling is to at least some degree neither pleasant nor unpleasant, neutral, often the tendency is to ignore what's going on, not connecting with present moment experience, maybe accompanied by a subtle or not so subtle state of not wanting, not wanting, not interested to see reality in that moment. Most of us are intense experience junkies. If it's intense, we're likely to pay attention, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. If it's not intense, we often just don't notice. And we might think, well, nothing's happening. And so again, we're craving something or expecting or experiencing the aversion or experiencing boredom or both. Without an intimate and careful attention to feelings, they have the potential power to disturb us emotionally. They have the potential power to make us suffer. An amazing thing about feelings is that we very often forget that they change. The very same object that produced pleasant feelings in the mind, sometimes within moments, can produce unpleasant feelings in the mind. 
and vice versa, as you, I'm sure, have noticed. And so again, we experience attachment, clinging, or various states of aversion. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering, remembering the connection that mindfulness offers to see things as they are. Quite a number of years ago uh, now, uh, I was sitting a three-month retreat uh, over at what we used to call IMS, now called the RC. And in the little back dining room, there were, I don't know if there still are actually, shelves where yogis stashed their special stashes. I had a stash back there. And one day, on top of my stash, uh, there was a note for me from the person whose stash was next to mine. I had no idea at that point who this person was. The note was offering me some green tea from his stash. And a very pleasant feeling arose inside my mind and my body. This person was offering me something. And I like green tea as well. Very pleasant. So I answered his note and thanked him and took some green tea. Very soon, uh, maybe the next day, there was a second note offering me a hat. He'd noticed uh, that I had been going outside uh, without wearing a hat and the weather was beginning to cool down. Not such a pleasant feeling in the mind with that note. I felt impinged upon. I didn't like the attention that I was getting at that point. But I answered the note very politely, thanked him and told him that I already had a hat. Thank you. Then soon, maybe again the next day, there was a third note. And the third note was a practice question. A most decidedly unpleasant feeling uh, arose in the mind. And a very quick, unmindful reaction in the mind to write back a not-so-polite note to this person. But fortunately, mindfulness and wise discernment kicked in soon enough. And I didn't write back a nasty note. I just simply relaxed and let go and didn't respond at all. And the note stopped at that point. At the end of that three-month retreat, I spoke with this person And he said that he had gone through a similar process and was very grateful after going through quite a bit of inner turmoil, he said, that I didn't answer him that last time. He was happy to not be writing any more notes. I think that you all would 
probably agree that when you feel pleasant and unpleasant as a result of contact through some sense door object, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling isn't in the external object or within the internal object of attention, such as a bodily sensation or thought. The feeling is in the mind. So what is it that is often the root of the feeling and the subsequent action Uh, in relationship to our experience? What is at the root of the feeling that arises in relationship to our experiences? In my three-month retreat story, the feeling and the subsequent action of answering the first two notes and the feeling and the reaction in my mind with the third note were all very clearly coming from a place of self, of me. When we begin to see that all of the feelings that we experience are within us, that we ourselves are really mainly responsible for the feelings that we experience, we begin to know that we can't blame others for the way that we feel. What for so many of us are habituated storylines of he made me angry or she made me feel terrible or he made me feel so happy or this place or these people make me feel so peaceful or so miserable. As we begin to pay a careful attention to the feelings that arise, the habituated storylines begin to lose their strength. They begin to fall apart. In the light of seeing things clearly, putting the blame on others for our feelings isn't realistic. It's not the way things really work. We have the possibility of letting go of the stories, the myths that we have about ourselves and about others, the various beliefs that we have about ourselves, what we think we're capable of or not capable of, how we define ourselves, We have the opportunity to let go of, relinquish various beliefs that we have about our bodies, our mind, our emotions. Beliefs that we may have been holding on to very tightly and stuffed into the closet of our mind. And just simply pay attention to our experience just as it is in the moment. So simple, really. So simple it's hard to believe that this is all it takes. 
though, as you know, though it's so simple, it's not really so easy. The potential illuminating aspect in relationship to cultivating a careful attention to feelings is that it's at this point in our experience that we have the direct, immediate opportunity to drop our habituated reactions of attachment, clinging, and the various permutations of aversion. It's at this point in our experience of noticing the feelings of pleasant or unpleasant or the feeling of neither pleasant nor unpleasant that we can in moments just see, experience, and know the phenomena and know the attendant feelings. And that, just be that. In that moment, there's no mental suffering. The heart, the mind, is not disturbed. It's a moment of ease, a moment of peace. Giving birth for the first time 44 years ago was my first formal teaching and practice in mindfulness although it wasn't called that. The Lamaze birthing method was a training in being fully present, awake, and aware in the process, the birthing process, that was happening in and of itself. And that I was certainly very involved with. Throughout the training, we were told that any resistance to the process that was taking place would make it extremely uncomfortable and most likely quite unpleasant, which I very quickly discovered when the birthing actually began. Getting myself out of the way of it, while at the same time being totally present, engaged, and aware in the midst of it was very intense, not so easy, but really quite okay. And actually, mostly neutral in the light of pleasant and unpleasant feelings. Selfless engagement in the birthing process allowed it to be incredibly interesting and truly filled with wonderment and a very powerful lesson that has continued to inform me over the years. Feelings are particularly important mental factors in developing insight into the cause of suffering. Because these feelings are what condition our mind to hold on to the pleasant 
or push away or avoid or ignore the unpleasant. Learning to mindfully observe feelings with a more with more balance, with more equanimity, and thus less attachment, less aversion and identification, is an important and very helpful door to open on our way out of suffering. So this second establishment or domain of mindfulness in our practice Contemplation of feelings, simply in themselves. The feelings in the feelings. An amazing aspect of mindfulness is that it has the capacity to connect directly and simply to the experiences that come in through the six sense doors with what can be called bare awareness. With bare awareness providing very immediate and direct access to these experiences just simply being known. And sometimes we may experience just this. But at times, and maybe quite often, the direct, simple knowing of phenomena may almost immediately be colored or modified by various mental factors or various states of mind. This being the third domain or foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the mind. Mindfulness of the various mental factors or states of mind that arise in relationship to experience. So for example, we go to the marketplace, the marketplace of the lunch food display, the marketplace of where to do walking meditation this hour or the marketplace of which shirt to put on today. I live in Taos, New Mexico, a place where many people visit specifically to come to the marketplace there. Beauty abounds there. I went through a period of practice some years ago where I'd walk uh, down the street looking in the shop windows and watch my mind and watch my body. Awareness of seeing, just seeing forms, colors, bare attention. And then I would notice the coloration of the mind of wanting, leaning into, and even sometimes the quite strong desire of seeming need. Greed, coloring a moment of seeing, a moment's experience of seeing. A really good practice in the midst of the marketplace. Any marketplace. 
to sustain and deepen in our practice, to see things as they are, two of the most essential qualities of heart, of mind, that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. So for instance, if another person notices that I'm feeling and maybe even expressing greed or some form of aversion, it doesn't matter if his or her image of me is shattered. What matters is that I'm willing to come face to face with these mind states, bringing mindfulness right to the greed or fear or anger or sadness. And as you know, this isn't always so easy. Tremendous interest, energy, and humility is needed to sustain the observation, to see yourself as you are, just as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, without judgment, you don't try to project a different image to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Thakar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who has been a profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, says this about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer. The austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy, or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she says. The Dalai Lama tells a story about being taken window shopping in some big city uh, to an area where there were lots of small shops that sell all kinds of small mechanical parts and small mechanical systems. The person who took him uh, to this part of the city knew that he was particularly interested and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. For instance, he loves to take apart watches, work on them, and then put them back together again. The Dalai Lama said that 
he found himself looking in the windows of the shops, at first seeing with a very open curiosity and interest, and then all of a sudden realizing that he wanted everything, wanted all of it. He said, I didn't even know what any of it was for. I just wanted it all. Are you mindful of your mind? You might ask yourself, how driven am I by my desires? Or how driven am I by my aversions? And so taking a look at the marketplace of your inner world of meditation, a moment of deep calm, a mindful moment of directly knowing this calm. No thought about it, just it as it is, just tranquility, just calm. And then, maybe quickly followed by grasping, wanting it to never leave. Directly knowing this, too. Knowing this, too, without judgment. Mindfulness can know the mental factor or coloration of the mind of wanting, the mind of greed, within the greed itself, or the mental factor, the colorations of anger or hatred or fear or delusion. Any state of mind can be known within itself, how it acts, its changing flavors, its momentary cessation. A moment of consciousness might be colored by faith or by delight or dullness or some form of aversion. As I'm sure you've experienced at times, each of these mental factors, these colorations, may arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience such as a breath, a sensation, a sound, a taste, a memory, a plan, an image in the mind. In the Abhidhamma, which is a very clear and detailed treatise on the workings of the mind from the Buddhist perspective, there is quite a long and detailed list of the many and various mental factors that may quickly come along uh, to accompany and color the bare awareness of any present moment experience. This degree of perception 
distinction and naming in such minute detail of each of these states of mind isn't really absolutely necessary. It's enough for you at this point to be mindfully aware of the more usually or more ordinarily experienced coloration, colorations of any given moment of consciousness as they arise, quickly change and cease. For instance, mindfulness, knowing, delight, calm, joy, faith, liking, disliking, judgment, disappointment, clinging, attachment, fear or anger or hatred, irritation or appreciation. In relationship to the bare awareness of the experiences of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking. And again, a reminder, the essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging or discrimination between right and wrong, good or bad. It's just this in this moment, whatever it is, however it is. Within mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, no rejecting, no manipulation of experience. So this third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, mindful awareness of mental factors, states of mind, seeing and knowing the colorations of consciousness in themselves. The last aspect of mindfulness that the Buddha points us to is called mindfulness or contemplation of dhammas. Dhamma, in this sense, can be translated as the truth or the way of things or the natural laws. This domain of mindful awareness can be grounded specifically in any of the six sense doors, grounded in hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, seeing, thinking. This fourth establishment of mindful awareness, contemplation of dhammas, may also be grounded in any of the five hindrances, sleepiness, restlessness, or agitation, doubt, or the grasping mind, or the aversive mind. The particular and wonderful specialty, so to say, of this fourth domain of mindfulness is that it sees any of these experiences through the doors of Dhamma, through the doors of the way of things, through the doors of the nature of things. 
whether experience is in the physical or the mental realm. This fourth domain of mindfulness sees and knows experience through the doors of truth. So, for instance, speaking briefly this evening about just one of these very important and insightful doors that we can walk through with this fourth domain of mindfulness. This is the doorway of the three universal characteristics that all experiences of body and mind are imbued with. In this fourth domain of mindfulness, we can directly, experientially pay attention and clearly recognize that every experience of body and mind is always changing, is impermanent. Each and every phenomena of body and mind, as well as everything around us, begins and ends, arises and disappears. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath. As practice deepens and matures, It gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this perfectly natural phenomena. What appears to be a steady flow of experience, even within the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion, the delusion being as though it's happening with an ongoing continuous flow. When in reality it's all beginning and ending arising and passing away in the most min- on the most minute level, second by second by second. And some words from the Buddha in relationship to this. Yogis, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen to that. And what, yogis, is the way that is suitable to attaining Nibbana? Here a yogi sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees eye contact as impermanent, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful as impermanent. She or he sees the ear as impermanent, sees the mind, mental phenomena as impermanent, sees consciousness 
as impermanent and sees mind contact with whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. This, yogis, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Every experience is anicca, impermanent, which is the first universal characteristic. And because of anicca, no experience that comes in through the six sense doors is ultimately or permanently satisfying. And so we continue on through our lifetime searching for some thing, some experience that will finally satisfy, finally make us happy. This unsatisfactoriness and the endless search is what the Buddha called dukkha and the second universal characteristic. The last of the three characteristics that we may come to know within this fourth domain of mindfulness is anatta. The truth that all experience, all phenomena is selfless, is totally interdependent and constantly changing, is totally contingent in its existence, both within its own seeming solidity as well as in its seeming set or static place in the world. All is anatta. All is empty of any separate, solid self. As we begin to directly experience and know anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, the third universal characteristic of anatta, or no-self, begins to reveal itself directly through our practice of mindful awareness. The no-self, or emptiness of all experience, all phenomena shows up quite naturally and often in unexpected and subtle ways. We begin to truly understand that no matter how hard we might try, there's absolutely nothing that can be clung to. And our relationship to our life begins to change we start to relax more and more deeply into just simply and more clearly being here, being here with things just as they are. In a conversation with one of his students, the Buddha offers an important and clear teaching about anicca 
anatta, and liberation. He says, contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megiya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit, I am, is eliminated. And that is Nibbana, here and now. And so as we go along in our practice, and when we're ready, this fourth domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, opens up the beautiful door to freedom, the simple and beautiful door to liberation, which we may experience just very briefly at times, with it eventually becoming more and more pervasive through our life. From this perspective, we could say that every single experience, every single phenomena holds the Dhamma, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the true nature of things, the way of things, is within everything, simply here to be seen, to be known. If we just take the time to experience our experience immediately and directly, if we just take the time to look carefully The truth is right here for us to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body, mind, and heart. And within each and all phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. In some Buddhist schools, this is spoken of as within samsara is nirvana. Within the whirlpool of our ordinary lives, within the whirlpool of samsara, if we stand still, cool, calm, focused, mindfully attentive, In that moment, we're no longer conditioned by ignorance, no longer conditioned by ignoring and being caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant, caught in the whirlpool of I like it, I don't like it, no longer caught unaware in the whirl of continually, unwittingly, moving around and around and around the wheel. In the midst of samsara, we can stop and pay an extraordinary 
kind of attention, a mindful attention, and wake up. Mindfulness is the tool, the medicine for our awakening. And as it was so graphically talked about during the time of the Buddha, we take the medicine and purify the sickness and heal ourselves. And as this process unfolds and begins to blossom, we experience moments of freedom. We have the possibility to live with the deepest ease of well-being, the deepest wisdom and compassion, to be truly awake, free, truly healed in this life. We have the possibility of wandering into the natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind, an undisturbed heart. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different than anything else in the world. Nothing to argue with. Nothing to cling to. One of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, speaks about the fact that there's just one Dhamma that we need to practice, which is maybe uh, a great relief to those who think that they have to practice many, many things, many Dhammas to be liberated. In Pali, the word for this one Dhamma is apamada, which is sometimes translated as vigilance and which can be understood, as it's elaborated on in the commentaries to the suttas, as mindfulness. So from this perspective, mindfulness is the one dhamma that we need to practice. And some words from the Buddha in his speaking about mindfulness as a factor of enlightenment. If the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is present in oneself, a yogi knows that it's present. If the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is absent, a yogi knows that it's absent in himself or herself. And one knows how the unarisen factor of mindfulness comes to arise, and knows how the development of the enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes about. Rooted in careful attention, careful attention is declared to be the chief. Accomplished in careful attention, with a mind that has developed the enlightenment factor of mindfulness and discernment, one penetrates and sunders the mass of greed that one has never penetrated and sundered, the mass of hatred that one has never penetrated and sundered, the mass of delusion that one has never penetrated and sundered, 
yogis, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline toward the roof peak, so too, when a yogi develops and cultivates mindfulness and discernment and all of the other factors of enlightenment, he or she slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. So closing the talk this evening with a short uh, poem from Rumi. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust moat. Lunar moth. Love the candle. Taste your life. Put your shoes on upside down. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.